Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Jonathan Ames. On his latest novel, The Wheel of Doll. Jonathan Ames is the author of 11 books, including Wake Up Sir, The Extra Man, and You Were Never Really Here, all published by Pushkin Press. He also created the hit HBO comedy Bored to Death, starring Ted Danson, Zach Galifianakis and Jason Schwartzman, as well as Blunt Talk, starring Patrick Stewart. His thriller, You Were Never Really Here, was adapted for a major Hollywood film by Lynn Ramsey, starring Joaquin Phoenix. The Wheel of Doll, which we're going to talk about today, is the second book in the series of Happy Doll thrillers that began with A Man Named Doll, which I talked to Jonathan about 18 months ago. Jonathan, welcome back to Little Atoms. Well, thank you for having me back. Remind us who Happy Doll is perhaps recap a man called Dollar Little if you can do that without giving anything away about it because obviously we would still like people to read that one. Yeah, well, Happy Doll is uh, is fifty one years old, and when the wheel of Doll begins, uh, he's a private investigator in Los Angeles. Um, he has a dog that he's quite enamored with. He's a bit of a loner. He had been a policeman uh, for about 10 years, from his 20s to his 30s, and then began operating independently as a private investigator. And um, he likes to smoke marijuana. He's, he enjoys reading. He was in the Navy before he was in the Army, and on, being in the Navy on ships gave him a lot of time to read books. That was kind of his college years, in a sense. and. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that's the general. I mean, he's and he's a fairly large guy. I think he's about six feet two inches. I don't know what that would be in meters, and you know, maybe one hundred and ninety pounds. Again, I don't know what that would be in kilos. I apologize. So anyway, I, that's the description of Happy Doll. And his parents gave his last name is Doll, and his parents named him Happy, not realizing that would be quite a burden, perhaps. And the last time we spoke, we talked about the the irony of him being called Happy. And indeed, through most of that book, A Man Called Doll, he goes by the name of Hank. And at the beginning of this one, he informs us that he is finally dropping Hank and he is owning the name Happy. Tell us why. Um, yeah, well, he goes through so much in the first 
book that the second book is he's kind of transforming a bit and maybe he realizes i think the line i have that he kind of used the name hank sort of like a bald man with a toupee he, he was trying to cover over something and so maybe he's trying to get at more of who he is in this second book the wheel of doll and he's begun to study buddhism and so the wheel of doll is a sort of reference to the buddha turning the dharma wheel you know and the dharma is the truth or the path and so happy is on a path to maybe understand himself better so that he suffers less and and can be of greater service to the world yeah i wanted to talk more about his incipient buddhism because the other thing we knew about happy doll from the last book is is he was seeing a therapist and because he was able as an ex-serviceman and ex-policeman to, to see a therapist for free, he was seeing him four times a week. And although his therapist is mentioned in this book, he is clearly not seeing him as regularly as before. And that's, again, to do with this the beginnings of, of an idea of Buddhism that's forming in his mind. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, well... Well, he's in psychoanalysis. That's why he goes so often, you know, kind of old-fashioned Freudian psychoanalysis, which is more than the usual once-a-week therapy. And it's not so much that he's stopped seeing the analyst in the second book. It's just the action of the second book. I I think it takes place over about a week or 10 days, a lot of which Happy is out of town from Los Angeles. So he's just not seeing his analyst during that time. But the analysis and the Buddhism for him, not so much on the page, but, and it's something that's going to be talked about in the third book, actually work quite well together. There's four noble truths to Buddhism, and Happy is just at the beginning of his education of Buddhist philosophy, as I am. I, I cannot speak with authority on it, and it's but it's such a beautiful philosophy and tradition. But one of the main teachings is it's called the four noble truths and the first noble truth is to acknowledge that you suffer um whether it be you have neuroses addictions anger jealousy confusion hatred you know unhappiness acknowledge just acknowledge that you suffer which you know most of us are ready to do but there's also quite a lot of denial but then the second noble truth is to analyze your suffering to see what part you are playing in it all. So that's where psychoanalysis and Buddhism for happy begin to merge because he is trying to analyze his suffering to see what his role is in things and how is he contributing to his ongoing suffering. And then just since I'm talking about the third noble truth is by beginning this process, seeing how one's own actions, you know, create and deepen our pain and the pain of others, you begin to glimpse a little freedom and maybe you'll be able to change some of that behavior. And so you glimpse freedom. And then the fourth noble truth is pursue that liberation from your pain as much as possible so that A, your time on the planet is less full of suffering and B, so that you can be of greater help to others. So anyway, I'm rambling a bit, but that's the answer to Happy's use of Buddhism and psychoanalysis. And this being the second book in a series, there are some recurring characters from the first book. We'll talk about that in a moment, but I wanted to talk particularly about one character that doesn't return, 
and that is Monica, who was um, Happy's sort of love interest stroke friend in the first book. She's mentioned, but is noticeably absent from this book. Yeah, that was a very, well, at some point, conscious choice. She was such a big character in the first book, and you hear him ask after her at the bar, and maybe just from that one line, you get a sense that he's not in touch with her. This action picks up about eight months after a man named Dahl came to a conclusion. And I thought of doing a little bit more about her in the book, but uh, I don't want to give it too much away to the potential readers out there. But there's another love interest emerges in this novel. And in the third book, though, I feel like I've got to bring back Monica, you know, but part of what's fun about these books, like the third one that I've begun, it picks up 14 hours after the second book, The Wheel of Doll, ends. And so it's, in many ways, it's like I'm sort of imagining it's just an ongoing exploration of his life. So a character who was very big character in the first one, only briefly mentioned in the second one, that maybe you begin to pick up that, you know, we're going to keep learning about this character, Happy Doll, and uh, and maybe perhaps Monica returns in some way. So it's I, I haven't read the Nausgaard books, but I feel like they're one continuous tale of his life. So maybe in my own weird way with this private detective, Happy Doll, that's what I'm doing. Well, tell us something more about how you envisage developing Doll as a character over a series of novels. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what's I think what makes it appealing is that he can change. I mean, in, you know, when you read the Raymond Chandler, Philip Marlowe novels, Marlowe doesn't change very much. Maybe towards the end of the series, he, he the voice changes a little bit with the long goodbye and playback. In the Ross McDonald series about the private detective Lou Archer, we learn different things about Lou Archer. You know, he, he mentions an ex-wife in one book and then divorce proceedings in another book, kind of like what I do with Monica a little bit. But he doesn't, these guys didn't necessarily seem to change very much. But Happy, I think maybe with me being writing 50 to 70 years after a lot of these private detective series that so inspired me were first originated, I have a chance maybe to show this guy evolving because I maybe it represents my own trying to evolve or that I, I perceive life as an ongoing act of transformation, that we don't stay static. We're always changing inevitably. And if if we're inclined this way, growing. And so Happy kind of reflects that. But he's a very troubled guy and he keeps getting into troubling situations. So anyway, but yeah, I, I don't know if that quite answers your question, but that I, I see him as someone who's in a process of changing, growing, and also dealing with the traumas that occur in the previous tales. Like, you know, in the second book, he's very much dealing with the fact that in the first book, he, he killed several people in self-defense, but this weighs on him. He also took quite a physical beating. And so, you know, it's like I, I'm trying to, if people read them all, you know, they're sort of following what this guy is going through. So tell us something about I want to talk about the story of this book. Obviously, we can't give too much away, but tell us where Doll is at the beginning of this story. 
Well, at the beginning, it's like I said, eight or nine months after the action of the last book. And he's kind of struggling to make a living. He's sort of broke. And it's January of 2020, a few months before COVID is going to make its way, its tragic way around the world. And so it's January of 2020. He's broke. And like a classic beginning to most detective novels, he has a, a client who comes to his office who's going to present him with a case. And that's and that's how this book begins. So tell us something about Mary, the person that comes to his office at the beginning. Who is she? Well, she is, as she presents herself, uh, the daughter of this former love of Happy's, a woman named Ines Candle. And Ines has gone missing and Mary wants Happy to find her mother. And, you know, and in part because she knew of this relationship, though they had never met Mary and Happy, she was just a young girl. She thinks that there's a greater chance that perhaps he could find her mother who's homeless. And there's really, you know, but he, he at least knows what she looks like, even though it's been 13 years since he's seen her last. So he's hired by the daughter of this former love of his. And we quickly meet Mary's husband, um, a man called Hoyt Marrow, in a bar in a classic hotel in um, Sunset Boulevard. Tell us something about this guy as well. Yeah, well, thank you for picking up. That bar is, is a real place. It's called the Tower Bar in the Sunset Tower Hotel, which is this beautiful 1930s, Art Deco rocket of a building that I think at one time was an apartment building, then a hotel, then maybe an apartment building again, and now a hotel again. And it has this kind of, you know, dark, shadowy, sort of glamorous LA bar. I think sometimes there's Oscar parties, take the bar over and things like that. And it's a bit of a Hollywood scene place. And, or at least it used to be. I think it still is. And uh, so that's where he goes to meet Mary and her husband for drinks, because the husband is the one who's going to be financing this investigation. And the husband is an older man, Mary's in her early 20s. And this guy looks to be in his late 40s, early 50s. And he's right away, maybe strikes a somewhat sinister, makes a sinister first impression. But it, you know, has a lot of facade. I think right away, Happy doesn't quite like the fellow. But, you know, it's a client and and he wants this job once it's offered to him because he wants to see if he could find this old love. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jonathan Ames and we're talking about his new book, The Wheel of Doll. And Jonathan, tell us a little bit more about, again, without giving too much away, a little bit more about Inez Candle and her previous relationship with Doll. Yeah, well, Inez, when they met 13 years ago, she was 48 and he was 38. So he he's a younger man in the relationship. They meet in a bar and she's quite beautiful and exotic looking. But it'll turn out that she's a prostitute and a intravenous drug user. But she's, at least when they meet, somewhat holding it together. Though she's maybe slightly mad also, especially with her drug addiction and she had a very unusual life. She it was from a, a religious family who um, basically cut ties with her when she was a teenage girl. And she's had this very picaresque life, which included uh, working as an acrobat in a circus. I had once met an acrobat and that somewhat inspired that. I don't go to circuses a lot, but there's a lot of little circuses that still exist and travel all around. And anyway, she's quite an unusual character and Happy very much fell in love with her when they first meet, but they only last about three months. Um, and then Ines disappears from his life for 13 years until her daughter shows up in his office looking for her mother. As you mentioned in the first half, she's she's currently homeless and the book features the, the homeless communities of both LA and more specifically um, Olympia, Washington, which is where Happy goes to look for Inez. So tell us something about what the homeless situation is like in the US at the moment and why you wanted to write about it. Yeah, well, you know, first of all, it's uh, a huge social tragedy here in Los Angeles, Uh, the sheer number of people without homes and just the breakdown which I don't fully understand, but going back decades of, you know, the closing of institutions where people who are severely troubled might at least be able to live indoors um, because, you know, it's not just people who somehow don't have enough money, but there's literally quite mentally unstable people, but have nowhere to go. Anyway, I'm, I'm not, I can't speak on it 
intelligently just as a witness that this is a, a deep social problem here in the US and I also I have a a dear friend who's been homeless for several years and so it was somewhat inspired by uh this friend's life and the stories I was told and have been told about life on living on the street and just how profoundly difficult it is but also how people do adapt I've never been to Olympia, Washington, but I did some research on the city and I know they have a homeless population. And I saw a video about a homeless encampment under a bridge, which kind of inspired this one encampment in the book. And so this issue is very much inspired by the unfortunate uh, experience of my friend who has a very uh, devastating drug addiction. And, you know, in many ways, won't come off living on the street, even though they might have the opportunity. Um, so, you know, that sort of drew me into that world through my friend. You also alluded to this in the in the first half, but um, the first book, A Man Called Doll, was dedicated to a friend of yours who you lost through COVID. And as you mentioned, COVID features, albeit obliquely, in this new novel, and of course, presumably was written during COVID, the novel was presumably written during COVID. So tell us something about how the pandemic affected the novel. Yeah, well, initially, I think I wanted to include the pandemic and all that was going on in the US, because I, I, I think I must have, I don't know if I started the book. No, I think I must, I, I may have started the book right a few months before the pandemic. And then the pandemic hits and but I ultimately, you know, for thrillers, it's good to have like a compressed time frame. So like I said, the action of this book is really about maybe 10 days total. So to create a sort of, you know, chronological and linear tension. So I ended up not, which was a relief, not having to deal with the pandemic because also, you know, a book comes out eight, nine months, a year after you finish it you're going to be behind the times anyway, to a certain degree. And so it's just barely alluded to in the book when Happy returns to Los Angeles, it's late January, and two friends of his are quite sick with a flu, and they don't know if it's the flu that they're hearing about on the TV. Because I, I think also, you know, who am I to say, but COVID was obviously around months or even a year, who knows how long before it reached its volume like a, a wave gathering like a tsunami gathering energy but anyway so yeah so it's just but i i wrote the book during the pandemic as you said and i found and i was working on some other things here and there that for me uh writing was such a great consolation during this time of greater isolation fear not knowing you know, we never know what the future will bring but Writing was the one place where I could sort of forget about the world and and just try to play with sentences and maybe create images for a reader to either amuse them or entertain them or to share some of my confusion about the world with the world. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that's, yeah, that's sort of some of the issues around the pandemic and the creation of this particular book. 
And on, a, I guess, a wider level than the book, but a, a more localised level than all of America, what did the pandemic do to, to L.A. and to your neighbourhood? How did it change? Um, well, L.A. is an interesting town. Like, I've lived really in two cities now in my life, for the most part. I've lived other places, New York and Los Angeles. And Los Angeles, by nature, is a somewhat more isolated town. People live in their homes. They drive their cars most everywhere. There's, you know, these sort of neighborhoods where there is a main street, but usually you drive your car and then you do all your shopping in this particular area, or that's the where you go to restaurants. And so in many ways, LA was quite suited for a more, I, at least the way I live in LA. Some people are live in areas like downtown Los Angeles, which are more a walking city or they people who go out a lot or went out a lot to nightclubs or music or bars. I really had become increasingly quiet during while well, since moving to Los Angeles eight years ago. So for me personally, Los Angeles life wasn't radically wasn't hugely different. Of course, not seeing anyone other than my girlfriend, that of course was different. Not even going for casual coffees or dinner. I had elderly parents, you know, at some point I must have started seeing them wearing a mask, you know, in, in their little apartment with the windows open. It's all a bit of a blur now. So I don't, Los Angeles, at least the Los Angeles I know, in many ways, wasn't radically different. But of course, you know, businesses closed, people lost social lives, you know, and lost so much more. But we've all, you know, it's all been insane. Uh, I mean, the person who I dedicated a man named Dahl to, he was a, an older, dear friend of mine who did die of COVID early in the pandemic. He was in New Jersey. New York and New Jersey were hit incredibly hard, like 30,000 people died in a month or two. I mean, it was insane. So To finish it off, can I get you to read us a bit of The Wheel of Dahl? Yeah. Anyway, so here's a passage from The Wheel of Dahl. And uh, like I said, Pappy has a dog named George. Here's the passage. An hour later, George and I were in bed, and I was reading Watership Down, and George, on top of the covers, by my thigh, was having a dream, vocalizing little yips. He has a rich inner life and may have been dreaming about his nemesis across the street, a proud German shepherd with failing hips named Major. Meanwhile, I had eaten a cannabis edible before brushing my teeth to help me sleep when I stopped reading, and I was feeling some far-off paranoia, the usual sense of approaching doom and punishment, but it wasn't too bad. Then my eyes growing tired, I read this passage in my book. Rabbits, say Mr. Lockley, are like human beings in many ways. One of these is certainly their staunch ability to withstand disaster and to let the stream of their life carry them along, past reaches of terror and loss. They have a certain quality which it would not be accurate to describe as callousness or indifference. It is, rather, a blessedly circumscribed imagination and intuitive feeling that life is now. I nodded in firm agreement with this, thinking that rabbits were quite wise, and that this was an excellent approach to life, something for me to aspire to. And it occurred to me that rabbits were in their own way very Buddhist, 
since the Buddha preached the utter importance of the now, as did all the Eastern philosophies. Then, too tired to keep reading, I rested the book on my chest and placed my hand lightly on George's tawny back. He had stopped yipping and was now sleeping peacefully. I hadn't intended to disturb him, but the slight pressure of my hand woke him, and he looked at me tenderly and drowsily and seemed to be saying telepathically, Don't you think it's time to go to bed? So I looked at my watch. It was almost 12.30, and he was right. Time for bed. I turned off the light, and George got under the blankets. He nestled against my right thigh, a good warm spot. My dear pal, a silvery light from the moon slipped in around the edges of the curtains, and with thoughts of Ines and Mary and the grotesque marrow swimming around in my mind, I lay there unable to sleep. I had too many questions. Who were those four young men doing drugs, and why were they in the house, and where did Hayes Langdon come in? And who exactly was Marrow? And as the minutes passed, the edible became more and more amplified in my mind and my body, and I could feel George quite viscerally against my leg, and it seemed like I was having some new level of connection to him, like we were piled up as puppies in a litter together, or rabbits in a burrow, and I had a flash of insight, some kind of understanding of why animals sleep so close together, because it felt like George and I were one large fused animal and what I was experiencing was Darwinian safety in numbers, like a school of fish swimming together to appear like a large fish, and I was feeling it, really feeling it, and because of this fusing, I began to sense what it was like to be George, to be in his body, to be quick and fast, compact and springy, and he could feel what it was like to be me, ponderous yet strong, and our minds were operating along one pathway, exchanging information, inner blueprints, and I thought, how could I have never experienced this before? And it was magnificent. I had always wanted to be a dog, or at least part dog. But then because one is never allowed to stay in heaven for too long, my cell phone rang like a fire alarm, tragically breaking the spell. And I cursed the bastard phone. I wanted to be half George again, but it was useless. The moment had passed, maybe never to be felt again. And I reached for the glowing instrument on my bedside table. And there was no name on the screen, only a number, but I pushed answer, and it felt strange to speak English after having merged with George, but I managed to spit out, hello? It was Mary, and her voice was very faint. I just wanted to thank you again for doing this, Mr. Dahl, and also that I'm very sorry about my husband, that he was rude to you. You don't have to apologize, but I wanted to. I understand. Are you, are you all right, Mary? I'm fine. Good night, Mr. Dahl. And she abruptly hung up. Like everything to do with this case, her call was strange and disconcerting, and I thought of calling her back, but I didn't, and I put the phone down on the table. Then I closed my eyes and thought about the trip ahead and wondered if I might really find Ines and what that would be like. And George was still warm against my leg, peacefully oblivious to my problems, and I dreaded parting from him the next day. So that's all I'll read, and thank you for listening. So I've been talking to Jonathan Ames. We've been talking about his new book, The Wheel of Doll, which is out in the UK from Pushkin Press. Jonathan, thanks again for coming in and telling us about it. Well, thank you for having me, Neil, and a pleasure to be on the podcast again. Thank you. 
This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.